The last time I hung out with Jerry was probably one of the last days he was on the orb, and we were discussing the sculpture of Andy Goldsworthy, who did amazing things with giant logs and in configurations of wonder. It would have installations, jaw-dropping, causing your chin to bounce on the twigs and lumber of outrageous fortune. And yes, that's what Jerry and I were talking about. And I, I may have had a art book of Andy Goldsworthy's installations, and that's where Jerry and I were going through them page by page. They pulled him away because he had to play rock and roll. <laughs> Welcome to American Prankster, the rivetingly incredible, historically fascinating life story of Wavy Gravy, original beatnik, hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon. Jerry, come on! Yeah, but just one more page. No, Jerry, it's time! So anyhow, he left me there with Andy Goldsworthy and went to play rock and roll, which he did very adroitly and with great wonder. The Jerry Wave he's talking about is Jerry Garcia, lead guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter of The Grateful Dead, who died at 53 of a heart attack in 1995. When he passed, I wrote a haiku, which became somewhat famous. It goes as follows. The fat man rocks out. Hinges fall off heaven's door. Come on in, says Bill. Now there's that deep reference there. The Bill involved is Bill Graham, who has just blasted over to the other side. And uh, that's where Jerry had gone. So it was an invitation for Jerry to join Bill in heavenly shenanigans, which I'm sure were so. Counterculture concert promoter Bill Graham died in a helicopter crash in 1991 on his way to work. Bill was probably just as pushy in heaven as he was on earth, but I adored him. Wavy knew everyone in the San Francisco counterculture music scene from his mid-1960s stint at the committee when a frog sandwich to go was the secret password. And I often would show up in his life one particular time. I forget why, but it was a Sunday and I brought the earth on a silver platter, it also blue cream soda. Cream soda is kind of like a plasma to uh, New Yorkers. Or no, just regular cream soda. The blue was the addition that I had which got his attention because nobody had ever seen that before. He let me in. He was just wearing a sheet and he was engaging in sexual congress with some Hollywood honey. I had something to communicate that we needed to do something possibly put on some sort of shenanigans to uh, reseed the planet. <laughs> some nonsense like this. And so Bill was the guy to talk to if you wanted to reseed the planet. <laughs> Anyhow, I certainly got his attention. He especially enjoyed the blue cream soda. And the earth was really well done. It was, I think, a Buckminster Fuller rendition. It was not round, but it, it had planes of uh, various it was yeah it was round but not round round it was interesting you rang it might have been bill from the other side oh bill how about some blue cream soda 
I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this chapter, our heroes pivot from Hugh Romney, Hollywood stand-up comedian, to wavy gravy rock and roll humanitarian hippie clown has been secured, thanks to 1969's Woodstock Festival, which turned Wavy and the Hog Farm Commune into music festival essentials, providing basic human needs to everyone. Hey, in 15 years, I will be 100. Woo! So I gotta, I gotta make it. I, I oh, yeah. have every intention of making it. I'm pretty frisky these days. If I make it to a hundred, they'll have me on all the talk shows <laughs> for no other reason. I tear for me's a hundred. <laughs> I remember Woodstock, and and I do. Speaking of Woodstock, two weeks after the festival that cemented bohemian youth culture into the mainstream, Hugh Romney and the Hug Farm were hired to assist at the Texas Pop Festival, Labor Day weekend, 1969, when B.B. King changed Hugh Romney's life forever. I want to thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This is the first time I've been on a festival and been there for the whole three days. That's B.B. King at the Texas Pop Fest in 1969. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're going to make the people know around the world that people can get together other than in Woodstock and still have a good time together. You're going to let everybody know that. We heard Wavy's story of how he got his unusual name at the end of episode one. Well, here's his wife, Jahanara, on that momentous moment in hippie history. I was married to Hugh right after Woodstock. So it was 69. There was another festival and they scooped us up and took us there because we had done a good job. And so they took us to the next festival and B.B. King, uh, he and Babs were fooling around on the stage and going, this is mumbly wumbly. And they both had microphones. Okay, mumbly wumbly, come in. Okay, this is wicky blicky. And one of the things out there was wavy gravy. And so B.B. came in and said, you wavy gravy? And wavy gravy said, yes, sir. (laughs) Whatever you say. But um, that's that's when he became Wavy Gravy, and then I decided that I had changed my name already once. I'd become Romney, and so I was going to stay Romney while he became Gravy, but now sometimes I call myself Mrs. Gravy. Hugh becoming Wavy was the first big thing to happen after Woodstock. He's diverged from Hollywood, but a natural ham finds his kick somewhere. And Wavy's fondness for music and revelry tethered him to the inner circle of rock and roll for the rest of his life. I'm laying on the ground and somebody said, B.B. King is here with this bus. He's going to play for free. Could we clear the stage? And I started to get up real slow and I felt this hand on my shoulder. And I looked up and there's B.B. King and he just looked down at me and said, you wavy gravy I said yes sir he said well wavy gravy I can work around you and he leaned me up against his amplifier took out his guitar named Lucille the rest is history but wavy gravy was absolutely correct and let's have fun Now, the second big event after Woodstock took Wavy to Chicago in November of 1969. I just flashed on another event that I had done with turkeys. 50 turkeys under strobe lights as a benefit for the Chicago 8. Now, in episode two, Wavy mentioned walking his inflatable banana through Chicago to deflect arrest. Well, the inflatable banana story is from this time. And here's the circumstances around Wavy's inflatable fruit weapon. I remember flying into Chicago to put on a benefit for the Chicago 8. And I came out of the aircraft wearing a World War I jumpsuit with an aviator hat. 
with a couple peace signs on it for eyes. And the Chicago police uh, dove on me. And they did not want to arrest me, but they wanted to take me downtown to show me to the other police. And I talked them out of that, and they dropped me off at this a joke store where I invested on my first giant inflatable banana, which I blew up and started walking across Chicago. Here come the police. Stop there. Boy, what are you doing? I'm walking my banana officer, shrunk down in the car and drove off. Wavy and his banana were in town to raise money for his yippie friend, Abby Hoffman. Abby was in Chicago. They were on trial for being naughty. It was Abby and Jerry Rubin and Dave Dellinger and Tom Hayden, yes, who later was Jane Fonda's squeeze, and they all got popped. The defendants in the trial say its outcome could decide the future of free dissent in the United States. Tonight, let's meet three of those defendants. Abby Hoffman, the Yippie leader, John Foynes, a chemistry professor, and David Dellinger. He's a 53-year-old pacifist in the Quaker tradition. I think uh, we're being tried with uh, carrying a state of mind across the state border. So if it wasn't for the law, uh, we'd win hands down because... That's Abby Hoffman. I've seen their case. Uh, it's all never-never land of insanity that only the U.S. government and the city of Chicago uh, can dwell in. To tell us about the Chicago 8 trial, here's Adrian Marin from Episode 6, a documentary filmmaker and Abby Hoffman's archivist. So an array of activists from across the movement were arrested for crossing state lines to incite riot. You had Tom Hayden from the Students for a Democratic Society. You had Bobby Seale from the Black Panthers. You had Dave Dellinger, who was an old school pacifist who had been uh, fighting war since World War II. And these eight figures were participants in this absolutely important and insane trial. So it was really the the government kind of cherry-picking all sorts of people to sort of take on almost like a, a Super Friends Justice League of the movement at the time. Abby was like Superman. Tom Hayden was like Batman. Bobby Steele was like the Green Lantern. These guys were like, you know, they were the real superheroes of the time, and they greatly mattered to people. And so the Nixon administration knew that if they gave these people a hard time and put them on trial, they could decimate those factions of the movement they represented. And the trial uh, became a what they would call a cause célèbre. Everybody from the, the, the former attorney general of the United States to the folk singer Judy Collins and Arlo Guthrie uh, testified at the hearing. And so the trial was an incredible critique of all sorts of things that needed critiquing at the time and still do. It was uh, not so uh, simply resolved. There were some convictions, Bobby Seale's charges were split off from the other defendants, uh, and he was ultimately separately tried, which is why there's the distinction between the Chicago 8 and the Chicago 7. You know, this was after Bobby was chained, was bound and chained and gagged in the courtroom because he was so adamant in his desire to be separately tried because he did not want to be uh, in a court case with all these other folks with whom he had nothing to do and some of whom he had never even met. 50 turkeys under strobe lights in Chicago at the Aragon Ballroom. That was quite an event. We had to weigh the turkeys. I said, why are we weighing the turkeys? The farmer says, we're going to weigh them when they come back and you got to pay for shrinkage. Yeah, and then I thought, well, well, that's a silly thing until... The rock and roll hit the turkeys, and the turkeys went nuts. So what we had to do was get uh, twine, and we made little leashes. And people became turkey tenders. 
And the, the, once the turkeys were unleashed, they were quite mellow. Abby came in, he said, why are these turkeys in jail? And I handed him this thing. And I said, follow me. And then he looked in his hand and it was the toe of a turkey. And we're doing first aid and he says, I ate your sister. That's what he said to the poor bird. We're touching up its toe. 50 turkeys under strobe lights. That was what we advertised in this great poster that was made by R. Crumb, who was one of the great cartoonists of all time. It was a wonderful, wonderful poster with hippies dancing. It was uproarious. <laughs> R. Crumb is one of the most recognizable counterculture cartoonists, and the poster for this benefit, The Conspiracy Stomp, features R. Crumb's signature chubby caricatures jitterbugging, the slogan, Power to the People, a $4 donation request, and, as it was less than two months after the Texas Pop Fest name transformation, Wavy is still credited as Hugh Romney. No turkeys on the poster. The show was a super success. Who played? <laughs> there was a Black Panther band called Calvin's Walla Walla Basics. <laughs> Jethro Tull, the great English flute player. Oh, God, so many years ago. There were the, a group called the Angels of Light. They were all gay men and were very popular and militant in their own sweet way. Oh, God, I haven't thought of the Angels of Light in several decades. They were quite something in their time. So from what I could gather online, the Angels of Light were an offshoot of San Francisco's famous Cockettes, a gay psychedelic hippie theater group inspired by Wavy's friends, the Living Theater in New York, and the Merry Pranksters. Now, it could be wrong, as Wikipedia states the Cockettes formed the Angels of Light in 1971, and the conspiracy stomp Turkey Trot was in November of 69, but I'm assuming Wikipedia is wrong. Back to the Conspiracy Stomp lineup. There were musicians that came over after the main portion of the show had transpired and people were kind of passed out on the floor. And then Bob Gibson, who was a famous Chicago singer-songwriter, who uh, made this amazing album called Gibson and Camp. And they were huge, and they had an album out on Elektra Records. And Shel Silverstein, are you familiar with Shel Silverstein? I cannot go to school today, said little Peggy Ann McKay. I have the measles and the mumps and gasherash and purple mumps. And... Wait, what? What's that you say? You say today is a Saturday? <laughs> Goodbye. I'm going out to play. Yes, Shel Silverstein poems were a mainstay of my childhood. Yeah, yeah, he wrote the liner notes for the Gibson Camp album. Famed writer-illustrator Shel Silverstein is best known for his books Where the Sidewalk Ends and The Giving Tree, plus penning the song A Boy Called Sue, made famous by Johnny Cash. Shel Silverstein died in 1999 of a heart attack. And the album is jaw-droppingly beautiful. Their harmonies were just chilling. Well, 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 who's that a call? Well, 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 hold my hand. Gibson and Camp, they were without equal and funny too. And Bob Camp became Hamilton Camp, but he was also not only a great singer, and he also played a saxophone. That it was he was a small man, and the saxophone rested on the floor, and he could just get his lip around the top, but he could play. Oh boy, could he play! 
Wavy's friend Bob Camp, a.k.a. Hamilton Camp, was a musician, songwriter, voice actor, and comedian who wrote songs covered by Simon and Garfunkel, Graham Nash, and the Quicksilver Messenger Service. He was also in Second City, The Committee, and tons of TV shows, including DuckTales, Three's Company, The Smurfs, Flintstones, Jetsons, the list goes on. Hamilton Camp died of a heart attack in 2005. Popular way to go. The voice of Judge Julius Hoffman today became an issue in the conspiracy trial. Defense attorney Leonard Weinglass moved for a mistrial, claiming that the tone of voice in which the judge read the indictment to prospective jurors was prejudicial to the defense. The judge, I can only use the voice the Lord gave me. I got to go to the trial of when the Chicago 8 were being tried, although I was informed that if I blew up my banana in court, I would do some serious time in the slammer. So I had to behave. And so, of course, I behaved because there's no desire to go to the uh, Chicago slammer of uh, the jails that I have gone. From sea to shining sea, I suspect that the most tedious was in the United States of Chicago. The Chicago 8 trial ended in victory for Abby and the rest of the defendants. A score for the downfall of evil. Could we have the next slide, please? Zoevi is now firmly on the path of producing rock and roll benefits and events for the betterment of all. He wears a jester suit most of the time and has rainbow teeth and keeps things like whoopee cushions, kazoos, and bubbles in his pocket at all times. Wavy now embodies the ethos of the American hippie, peace, love, and rock and roll. He and the hog farm are in demand at concerts, providing basic human needs and infrastructure. Wavy, were you at Altamont? Oh, my God. That was the sound of a little violence on the stage Saturday afternoon at Altamonte. The Altamont Free Concert of December 1969, held at the Altamont Speedway in Northern California, was publicized as Woodstock of the West and featured a lineup of the Rolling Stones, Santana, Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, and more. Unfortunately, Altamont became infamous as the opposite of Woodstock, with bad vibes from the start and a shocking descent into chaos and violence, blamed on the presence of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang, who were given beer in exchange for their brawn to patrol the stage, a significant difference from the Hog Farm's cannabis-fueled police force at Woodstock. After Woodstock, we drove out with Stuart Brand in George Walker's bus. Stuart Brand and George Walker are original merry pranksters. Back to Altamont. We had no control over anything. And I was on the stage, backstage, and trying to get into significant visual peerage. And they were forever moving things around so that no sooner would I find something nifty to peruse than they would put a light on it or grab a wing piece of scenery and pull it in front of me. And so I would be eclipsed. And so I hated that. And we kept trying to look at stuff and and then the people that were shooting the movie were complaining that our little lights were interfering with their interferometry or whatever the hell it was. There was a constant battle between those of us that were crawling around in the trenches and the big time important movie people. Oh God, I can't remember the name of those people. I knew them rather well and I despised them. <laughs> Of course, they proceeded to get in the way of everything that we were trying to do because their way was more important than our way.
The documentary shot at the festival, Gimme Shelter, captured Altamont's turmoil. We're splitting, man, if those cats don't stop beating everybody up inside. Hey, you know, guy's got a gun out there. Hey, There's no reason to hassle anybody. Please don't do that. What happened here, anyway? Yeah, he pulled out a gun. Huh? He did? Yeah. Altamont ended in Bedlam, with several musicians suffering injuries at the hands of the Hells Angels and the stabbing death of a festival goer. He just took the gun away from him. Proceeded to put him down on the ground and start kicking him. Pronounced him dead. It was so funny. I don't know how If you move back and sit down, we can continue. How did you guys get out of Altamont? God, first of all, like I said, we had nothing to do with the organization. And I was just a few feet away. First of all, when the airplane played at Altamont. When members of the Jefferson Airplane got in a little scuffle with some members of the Hells Angels. And one of the Hells Angels proceeded to maybe knock your Kalkinen unconscious. Much to Paul Kantner's chagrin. Yorma Kakanen and Paul Kantner are members of the Jefferson Airplane, an iconic psychedelic San Francisco band featuring singers Grace Slick and Marty Ballin. The Jefferson Airplane! Jefferson Airplane! It's getting a little weird up here. Hey man, I'd like to imagine that the Hells Angels just uh, smashed Marty Ballin in the face and knocked him out for a bit. There's uh, other ways. Yeah, wait, you, you, uh, is this on? You're yeah. talking to me, I'm going to talk to I'm you. I'm talking to you, man. I'm talking to the people that hit my lead singer You're in the head. You're talking to my people. Right. Let me tell you what's happening. You! Hey, what's not happening. happening. Hey! Oh! No! Oh, hold it. That's the Jefferson Airplane fighting with the Hells Angels on stage at Altamont. The footage is crazy, with the Hells Angels taking over the mic and roughing up the crowd and band. Marty Ballin is one of the lead singers of the Jefferson Airplane, who was assaulted by the Hells Angels. Side note, I own Marty Ballin's vinyl aqua couch, which my mom got at his garage sale. It's not something you could bring up with them, because they were not reasonable to chat with. Wavy's talking about the Hells Angels. That's just a duck for cover. And that's what I learned to do. Otherwise, you could get maimed. Put the blame on maimed, babe. Woodstock opened up the light and Avermont turned off the light. But, you know, it was not the end of everything. Indeed, it was not the end. In fact, 1970 dawned a few weeks after Altamont and Wavy and the Hog Farm set out to buy back the Earth. Well, the idea of Earth People's Park was to buy back the earth so it wouldn't be for sale anymore. So we started with 500 acres uh, in Norton, Vermont, which was the last left-hand turn in America. How much was it? I don't know, 30 grand or something like that. We went around the country panhandling spare change for the earth. And we had this big plaster earth with a slit in its side somewhere around uh, the Ural Mountains. I don't know where the slit was. And people would put money in it. And we kept driving around doing these rock and roll concerts and people kept putting money in the earth till finally we cracked it open and bought the first purchase, Earth People's Park. And people could go there and build homes and several people did. And it was lovely. Did you do it anywhere else? Uh, we we wished to, but I think we got exhausted. <laughs> Where did the earth go? The big plaster earth. Oh my God, I have no idea. That's always a good question. I think we cracked it open to get the money out. So it, was, it went to oblivion. I don't know the zip code. <laughs> but what a great word that is. Oblivion. I wonder, it sounds Irish. Davin Oblivion, Tristan Oblivion, Galen Oblivion. Maybe kills me. 
it's, it was a marvelous idea to buy back the earth so it wouldn't be for sale anymore because some very great minds suggested property is theft. <laughs> and you roll that around in your head for a while and it comes out in Norton, Vermont. <laughs> Earth's People's Park was inspired by People's Park in Berkeley, California. But unlike People's Park in Berkeley, Earth People's Park in Vermont was available for anyone who wanted to camp or homestead on it, rent-free, as long as they wanted. Unfortunately, the government seized the land in 1990 after a few of the park's inhabitants unwittingly sold undercover agents 10 ounces of locally grown marijuana. In 1994, Wavy, along with Ben Cohen of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, and some others ceremoniously transferred the title to the state of Vermont. Today, Earth's People's Park is called Blackturn Brook State Forest. Could we have the next slide, please? These men come down here to find out my reasons on rock and roll music and why I preach against it, and I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. If you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat. Tell me about the medicine ball caravan. Oh, my God. That was well after Woodstock. And ah, Tom Donahue, who was a, a genius of FM radio, had this idea of driving across the country and stopping and putting on these uh, little mini festivals. The record companies would fly in like Van Morrison and, you know, all these great artists uh, would perform. And then we'd pack up and go to the next place and do it again with other people. And we just kept working our way across the free world. I love Wavy's summary of the Medicine Ball Caravan. An example of Hollywood's thrill over the new subculture of hippies made safe to middle America by Woodstock, but still weird. Hollywood loves to exploit an underground subculture, and the hippies were still strange to most of America in 1970. Adults are afraid. All they think of is long-haired freaks and, and dirty people. To them, it's something strange and different. Luckily, the business hippies were hip to the exploitation, and reverse exploited, milking Hollywood to fund their psychedelic shenanigans. Did you hang with the CampyX people, Tom Donahue? Of course. Rachel? Yeah, I know all those people. We were on this movie called The Medicine Ball Caravan. The Medicine Ball Caravan was a movie and roadshow produced by Warner Brothers and originated from the brains of San Francisco's counterculture rock radio power couple, Tom and Rachel Donahue, pioneers of San Francisco's rock radio KMPX, later KSAN, the very first rock radio station in the country. On the front bus we have the sign that we have just on That's audio of Big Daddy Tom Donahue in the Medicine Ball Caravan movie. He's an enormously fat man, and Rachel, his tiny blonde, stunningly beautiful wife, sits beside him in the bus sewing, a vision of hippie domesticity. It just says, we have come for your daughters. Translation. On the front bus, we have this sign that we just put on carelessly today. It says, we have come for your daughters. Because that's basically what most people feel about these people. That, you know, it's like they are ravishing my daughters. So we put that on there. It's like a joke, but it's a true joke. And we will get some of them. Now, along with being a radio mogul, Big Daddy Tom Donahue was a record producer, concert promoter, and co-founder of Autumn Records, whose bands included the Boo Brummels, The Great Society, and Sly and the Family Stone. And Tom produced The Beatles' last public concert in San Francisco in 1966, as well as The Rolling Stones in 1965. Just so happens in the early 60s, my mom was a belly dancer and KMPX engineer with Tom's wife, Rachel Donahue. And my dad used to play poker with Big Daddy Tom Donahue before Tom died in 1960. 
1975 at the age of 46. So I called Rachel Donahue for more details about the Medicine Ball Caravan. How the caravan started. So we're in France. We meet this guy named Francois Reichenbach. He's a very famous documentarian. He's doing at this time a piece about Greta Garo. And he said, what if we tried to take... 365 hippies across the United States and get them to Europe without being killed basically is the premise, right? And believe me, it was hard. How did a hippie get cast in the medicine ball caravan? They had to write essays to be on this trip and and what your skill set was. And, you know, if you're a cook and you camp, plus we take all the children. So I had the pot bus because everybody in the morning, everybody got like a, a baggie, right? And, you know, we actually organized this. And Tom is the one who sells it, right? Uh, he sells it to Warner Brothers. And the idea is they get to drop in. We're going to go all the way in 30 days. We're going to take three, 365 random fucking hippies from San Francisco to London. And they're like... Well, sounds good. So basically, we had three bands under contract, so we put them all together to be one band, which turns out to be Stoneground. That's Stoneground, featuring my mom's best friend in the 60s, Deirdre Laporte. Stoneground was a 10-piece band that included many musicians on Big Daddy Tom Donahue's label Autumn Records. Some of its members included Pete Sears of Hot Tuna, Sal Valentino of the Bo Brummels, and Deirdre Laporte, my big sister's godmother and one of the hippie ladies present at my home birth. And uh, Warner Brothers would helicopter in. Every stop, they would helicopter in a new act. I mean, it ended up being Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, all these people. They would drop them in into these tiny little towns, and they, we didn't tell anybody in advance. Then we just go on a radio station and say, and it's free. Come on down. Warner Brothers is paying for all this shit. So we had this group of, I mean, stone-cold hippies. We would arrive in, in the town, and they would go behind whatever supermarket, grocery store, and they would get all the discarded food, which is very hip now. But then it wasn't, you didn't do that. Wavy Gravy, first of all, he's an excruciatingly intelligent man who used uh, comedy and specifically clownness. So some people, clowns are always scary. But before they became like it and they became a subject of movies where you know they're going to kill you kind of thing. But just, he walked around with a red nose, man. You know, who doesn't? So it was really hard to get mad at him for the townspeople. You know, like this, they're pulling groceries out of the back. So then the girls would, they would make these stews. We all had food on the caravan. They gave them to the poor people in the town. We had shit, man. We had a refrigerator talk until the guy who ran it took acid and couldn't remember how to turn it on. And Wavy was always there to uh, soothe the local people. And so he put everyone at ease, and the children, of course, loved him. And he didn't proselytize. The weird part was that he fed the locals. Wavy had a mission, and it was to feed people. Well, always people need to be fed. It's, there's, there are always needy people. Along with feeding people, Wavy also made a new best friend on the Medicine Ball Caravan. And it all got organized down on the San Francisco waterfront. And Larry Brilliant was signed on to be one of the doctors on the trip. We met Dr. Larry Brilliant in episode two. He's the doctor who helped eradicate smallpox on planet Earth, was often on TV during the 2020 pandemic, and calls Wavy a bodhisattva. Dr. Larry's also a founding partner of SEVA, Wavy's nonprofit baby, providing eyeball care around the globe. Here's Larry Brilliant on meeting Wavy. Of course, Gurich and I met Wavy 
at Pier 35, something like that, when we were all joining up to do this movie called The Great Medicine Ball Caravan. And we thought that arriving that day would be The Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and didn't even know about the hog farm yet. And I was going to be one of the two rock docks. And Gerge and I had our little Westphalia bus, which truly looked like a caboose. Gerge is Larry's wife. And we became the doctor bus. But that first day, uh, when we gathered together, I saw standing off in the sidelines uh, this guy who, I mean, there were a lot of unusual looking people there. I was a doctor. I don't think I had my white coat on or my stethoscope, but, you know, I knew I was going to be the doc. And um, my job that day was to vaccinate everybody before we got going, because we were going to be going to England and Europe. And of course, what I was doing is I was vaccinating people against smallpox. I didn't, of course, make that connection until decades later (laughs) that I first met Wavy by vaccinating him against smallpox. So many costume characters and, you know, so many of the uh, superheroes from the counterculture were there. Everybody had on their best counterculture garb. I, I think I even had overalls. But I saw Wavy. First image I had of Wavy Gravy was that he was wearing a duckbill hat with a real duck's real bill, a dead duck on his head. (laughs) And I thought, okay, this is something I haven't seen before. And I went up and I said, hi, I'm the doc. Uh, My name's Larry, what's your name? He says, my name is Wavy Gravy. And he smiled and I couldn't help but notice that his teeth were a rainbow and that every tooth was a different color. And I remember saying to myself, okay, this is a species I have not yet encountered in my visit to planet Earth. <laughs> and then, then I had to vaccinate him and the whole hog farm and everybody else, all the musicians and all the Warner Brothers executives. And Wavy and I became great friends. Uh, it was just something about we both loved quips. And uh, at that time, uh, we both felt we had read everything. <laughs> Wavy kept on doing that. I fell off the wagon, but it was wonderful. And Ja and uh, and Gierja became friends. And the four of us really, when we ultimately joined the hog farm, uh, after having taken a, a few psychedelic assists and experiencing the cosmic nature of the world that emanated from Wavy, we decided that we were going to get on the bus. And we got him on our bus along with his wife, Elaine later to become Gurdjieff. Kesey said you're either on the bus or off the bus. We were really on the bus. <laughs> we proceeded to drive from sea to shining sea. Back to Rachel Donahue. So it has to have been Placidas, New Mexico. They've gone BB King and Asleep at the Wheel and the Youngbloods. The people came over and they gave us a dump truck full of peyote buttons, as you do. And then they showed us how to cut out the choke so you don't vomit. There's that. One time, Warner Brothers helicoptered this guy in who was critical what we did let's not forget the grateful dead are on this tour so they dosed him so it went in when in doubt dose the grateful dead would use a like a little murine bottle like this like it just on really good acid you just have to come put a couple of drops in there this hot dog is delicious all you need is a drop i know this because they did it at my wedding now that's a story we'll get into in my psychedelic women podcast stay tuned for that Back to the medicine ball. It was an altered state for everyone, and people didn't seem to mind their altered state one bit. Nobody uh, ever came into the uh, freakout tent except to sniff the incense (laughs) and admire the hand cream. (laughs) But they were all enjoying the psychotropics and the music, which the best of which, of course, was Pink Floyd. We just loved and adored them. Before we get to Pink Floyd, a few details on the American portion of the tour. 
So I skimmed the Medicine Ball Caravan movie looking for wavy moments, but the movie's so bad it's almost unwatchable. There are shots of young Wavy, and I found a young hippie saying this. If you're going to film a film about, about that kind of thing, you better show Freddie Weintraub giving Wavy Gravy the instructions to be a groovy hippie and not have any crazy stickers on his car. The Medicine Ball Caravan movie seems to be mostly scenes of young, angry, or emotional hippie kids arguing, intercut with famous musicians playing in rural settings. I don't know whether you look around or not, man, but everybody here is an outcast from American society, man. And if we can't get it together among ourselves, man, it's not about hippies or drugs or et cetera. It's just about our caravan of people coming together. And here we are arguing. Trivia tidbit, the Medicine Ball Caravan was edited by a young Marty Scorsese who was brought in late to, quote, fix the mess. I guess he did the best he could do. Back to Rachel Donahue. These girls came and did tie-dye. We had, I don't know how many tie-dye teepees that were like, almost 20 feet tall and it wasn't like I'm dipping my shit in writ dye they were they had goggles and they had gloves so these giant teepees and then we have you know Indians who are showing us how to put the lodge poles in and all that hog farmer and teepee maker Dorji Bond remembers tie-dyeing teepees for the medicine ball Here's Dorji. That was pretty fun. We were down in this parking lot, tie-dyeing teepees in giant 50-gallon oil barrels. And that's where I met Dr. Larry, was hanging around those, because I think somebody had built a fire in one of the barrels, or maybe there was propane involved under the barrels, and that's why it was kind of warm around where the teepees were being dyed. In this big lock, the marina, somewhere in San Francisco. There was a bunch of San Franciscan People from various bands, the cast of hair. And, and so it was kind of funny for us because it was sort of a documentary, but it sort of had a, had a script. And it seemed to us like Francois Rieschenbach was always sort of a day late, you know, like he would miss everything with his documentary cameras. And then he'd show up and ask us to do it again. And we made pretty terrible fun of him for that. We did. We would, like, do it again, but we'd sing songs like, they're going to put me in the movies. What about encountering regular citizens? We'd get them to work on a giant painting with other people, or we made telephones out of dental floss and Dixie cups, and the police told us that our stuff worked better than theirs. <laughs> we'd run a Dixie cup into the cop car. It was hilarious. Oh, God, there was somebody who was into uh, spots. And they were covered with giant spots. And then they would cover anybody that got in their vector with spots. So there was a whole community of spotted people. And there were all kinds of things like that going on. Back to Dorji. You know, they were feeding us like crazy. There was suitcase, there was briefcases full of any drug you wanted. It was like all being provided by the movie companies, I guess. You know, they wanted to make sure the hippies stayed stoned or something. It was, that part was very surreal. And then they had miles of trucks following the buses around that had um, one whole truck full of meat and cheese and another whole truck full of yogurt and nuts and dried fruits. And so when we got to New York and we were getting ready to go to Europe, we tried to give all the food to the Black Panthers for their school lunch program, which is like such a cool thing. And the Black Panthers were really terrible to us. <laughs> we went up there to their little office and they were like, Avil, you sold out hippies. You think that you're so cool and you're just the man. But we persevered, you know, said, fine, say what you want about us. What we want you to do is we want you to take all this beautiful, perfect, healthy food and give it to the kids please, whether it's corrupt, bad vibed food or not, please give it to the children. And I think that they finally did take it. 
But it wasn't easy. We had to hear their politics first about, you know, how we've taken advantage of their people forever, which is, of course, true. Like today and always, race and tribalism in America was a hot-button topic. Here's Rachel Donahue. And everything was going fine until Nebraska. So we get to Nebraska. And Mylon Melvin. Mylon Melvin is an infamous hippie and smuggler from the San Francisco counterculture scene. He's also my friend's dad. He's wearing no helmet. He's got hair down to his shoulders. A wicked mustache. He looks like one of the Pirates of the Caribbean. And on his back, he's got a butch-cut black chick with a big old booty. And he's our scout. He goes in really a big mistake. It's Kearney, Nebraska. It's 1970, only two years since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, and only three years after interracial marriage was nationally legalized in the U.S. Yet, you guys, interracial marriage was illegal in some states until 1967. And here comes 365-plus San Francisco hippies of all colors across the country reveling in peace, love, and rock and roll, also known as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. More provocative words. That night it was supposed to be Joni Mitchell. So we're all gathered around the campfire and the Nebraskans come for us. I am not fucking kidding you. They got guns like this. They're circling the campgrounds. It was terrifying. They they were threatening to kill us all. Today, Kearney, Nebraska's website tells me it's where the heartland gathers and invites visitors to participate in their church basement ladies tour. So it goes to Wavy. How many people can you get in the bus? And he's like, maybe you should walk. We got to pack up everything now. It just, we leave Nebraska, where Joni Mitchell was supposed to play, and we free-for-all to somewhere outside of Chicago. Tom has some sort of relative there. He said, no problem. I want to hit 65 tractors here. Y'all come in. So we all came in, and we hid inside this forest that he'd built, and then we all came into his house. That he had long tables set out with all gold silverware and all this fantastic food, and so we've stayed there and then we canceled the rest of the trip, and then we went to London. This, ladies and gentlemen, is London. Swinging London, it's been called. Though some people might find a different adjective. Social rebels have taken over in what seems more like an invasion than a revolution. Because they've got their own new language that is way out and weird, to say the least. Were you friends with Alice Cooper when you did the medicine ball? Alice Cooper? God, no. I don't remember. Maybe, actually, I probably was. Alice Cooper is an American musician known as the godfather of shock rock, using props like fake blood, reptiles, and swords in his act. Here he is in the medicine ball. Oh my God, yes, what he did, it was terrible. It was this big event, and it was nighttime, and he had a pitchfork. And he skewered this pillow filled with feathers. And all the feathers stuck to why? Why did they stick? Everything was covered with lemonade or something. And all the feathers went down. And for some, yes, there was red spotlight. So all the feathers were flying around and they were red as they floated. Oh, yes, that's what we had to do. We had to remove the feathers from the wires of Owsley's sound equipment. 
Remember, Owlsley is the famous San Francisco LSD chemist whose product Wavy used to peddle with John Brent as Goon King Brothers Dimensional Crino. Along with being a superior LSD chemist, Owlsley was also the sound engineer for the Grateful Dead. One by one, we had to pluck the feathers off the wires of Olympic sound. See, I just remembered the name. Cursing Alice Cooper to uh, eternity in Wonderland. And we had to do it and do it and do it. It went on forever as we plucked them one by one. Oh my God, I haven't thought of that in a long time. Oh man, that was terrible for his. And everything was sticky with lemonade. Oh God. And feathers! Don't dangle my angel wings. Don't tangle my angel wings. I don't care how your angles dangle. Don't hang on my angel's wings. That's right. Back to Dorji. It was so wild because it was like sort of like reality and sort of not. And it was subsidized. It was when we were on that trip that I met. Who's the wonderful doctor? Patch Adams. Oh, you met Patch We went out to Patch Adams' place during that trip. And that was the first time out there in the country. That was the first time I'd ever seen fireflies. Oh, my God. You know, fireflies. It warmed my heart to learn the hog farm and Patch Adams converged at this time. The first narrative biopod from my own studio is The Best Day of My Life, Patch Adams' Journey to the Nobel Peace Prize nomination. Another series about an amazing hippie. Check it out. Back to Dorji and the medicine ball. And I've remembered that a lot because we just parked there on this farm out there that was his people's place in between where we dropped the bus off and then got on the plane and went to England. I think it was after everything from, we went to West Virginia from the last show in America, which was, I think, Alice Cooper in Washington, D.C. I mean, it was a wonderful thing skipping all across the country with these movie people putting on these free concerts. It was really great fun. You know, it was a big, long, month-long party. They tried very hard to make a storyline out of it. They wanted to create stars and, you know, zero in on what was happening with some kind of goal in mind. And we were sort of merciless teasers on that level. We didn't help them. But we all got really healthy before the trip to India, which was a great thing. Oh, yes, we're headed to Asia. But first, the hippies got to get to Europe. We proceeded to get to New York, where we actually uh, got on an airplane and flew to England. We still had Larry and Gurja and everybody with us. Speaking of Larry Brilliant, here's his version of the Medicine Ball Caravan's journey to England. And we traveled with our little caboose uh, until we got to Washington. And then we got into a, an Air India plane fly to London, and I won't tell you what happened on that plane other than to say that it was not a sober flight. And I remember when the pilot, who was a Sikh, came back and said, what are you guys smoking on my plane? And of course, all the hippies went, you know, terrified. He said, what are you smoking on my plane and you haven't offered me any? And then came that moment when we realized that some of the hippies, some of us, some hog farmers had perhaps given the pilot of the plane, a little tiny bit of hashish. And the rest of the plane ride, let's say, was uneventful in real life. But in our heads, it was an event. It's 1970, the same year the Beatles break up. 100,000 demonstrators protest the Vietnam War in D.C. A cyclone in Bangladesh kills a million people. And Wavy and the Hog Farm land in England. In England, we got another bus. That was Heinrich's all-night rainbow repair shop. There were different uh, titles to, to buses that we scooped up in Europe where we drove to Canterbury and did this amazing show with Pink Floyd. 
of all time, Pink Floyd was a psychedelic English band who formed in 1965. They're best known for The Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall, essentials for high schoolers everywhere. They officially disbanded in 2015. What'd you do with them? We did our whatever it is, dabbled stuff, and they played music. (laughs) And we set up a cool venue where it could occur, and it was magnificent. Here's Dorji on The Pink Floyd Show. And so that was the first stage I ever decorated. And I thought about it like about 10 years ago when I was putting together a resume to get some grant money. I thought, uh, was that stage really for Pink Floyd? Did I really decorate my very first stage for Pink Floyd? How could that be? That's sort of weird. Maybe I did. And so I looked it up online and sure enough, they gave me uh, 50 pounds, which was about $100. And I think it was wavy. They said, oh, just make a bunch of rainbow flags, Dorji. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. I thought I didn't know what I was going to do with, you know, $100 and no tools. I went into London and that's when I realized that the English cops didn't have guns, that they were all like bobby cops with little nightsticks. And they were like friendly and they weren't gonna hit us on the head for not wanting war. And that was kind of a revelation. Not only that, they helped you find the sewing machine store. So I went into town and I think I must have rented a sewing machine. I found a place to rent a sewing machine and buy some fabric and make some flags and I put them up. And um, I had never done anything like that before. <laughs> yeah. And so then the Pink Floyd played and it was quite wonderful. Can you tell a from a cold steel rail? A smile from a veil. Do you think you can tell? Rachel Donahue. So the other thing I remember at Wavy is his peculiar lack of reality. But he's one of the kindest, most thoughtful persons that I know. And also, I think, never mistake his foolishness for lack of knowledge. He's a clown, but he's an intellectual superior to most of us. And I think it's important for people to know that Hugh Romney Jr. is no fucking dope. Well, there was a lot of dope involved, but still. Oh, wavy gravy, here comes wavy gravy, wavy gravy. Here comes wavy gravy, wavy gravy, rolling round the bend. Here comes wavy gravy, the universal friend. Wavy, the hog farm, and their tie-dye teepees didn't stop at England. They kept going. Here's hog farmer Dr. Larry Brilliant. We landed, of course, and then uh, we did another final show. Uh, and then we got the bus and put it on um, a barge, take it across the English Channel, and we got to France, and we spent some time in Paris, and then went up to Amsterdam, where we did concerts and all sorts of wonderful, great adventures. Adventures in Amsterdam with Wavy Gravy. Okay, so we were in Amsterdam when uh, Janice croaked. Wavy means Janis Joplin, who died at age 27, October 4th, 1970, of an overdose. Janice had risen in fame along with a whole crew of San Francisco musicians and comedians in North Beach in the early and mid-1960s. And we sent out uh, invitations to celebrate her uh, dropping her body. We had this teepee on Zeebergerdijk, 
and I sent Fred the Fed out to get the Dutch counterpart to Southern Comfort. And we all gathered in this teepee at sunset, and there were beautiful corks in the uh, alcohol, which were Anamita Miscaria, so we instantly ate the corks and started passing this Dutch booze around and telling Janice stories. And as we got to the end of the booze and the end of the corks, we all held that final swallow of booze and simultaneously said a prayer for Janice and spat into the fire. And this great flash of light filled the teepee out through the flap where we heard a distinct Janice cackle. Before Wavy could get on the bus to Asia, he had to return to the U.S. Because Wavy had to have back surgery. Here's Dr. Larry. I certainly remember uh, Ken Kesey and Bobby Ware, Gary Garcia, and all these other friends of Wavy's coming to our house so they could say goodbye because Wavy and Ja were going to go back and we were going to meet the buses in Turkey for Thanksgiving. Perfect. Wavy gravyism. Side note, remember Thanksgiving is Wavy and Jaws' anniversary. By then he was in a whole body cast. We were invited to go to uh, meet Trungpa, this uh, Kargyu Lama. Trungpa was a Tibetan Buddhist meditation master, distinguished for spreading Tibetan Buddhism teachings in the West. Going into the room that Trungpa was going to speak in, Wavy wearing his, I think it was his cast of thousands, where he had pasted American Express traveler's checks and rupees and tapas and rials and dollars onto it. It was his cast of thousands. It caused a great sensation because on his lapel, he had two lapel pelts. One was the Dalai Lama, and right next to him was Mao Zedong. And the uh, what we call the Dharma Datu stormtroopers would not let Wavy in with those two. And he said, what are you doing? How can you possibly have the icon of communism and Dalai Lama in the same place? And Wavy looked at them with those eyes and says, it is a paradox. And we went in. I had my balloons that said, from your doctor for being good. Wavy had all of his paraphernalia. And Wavy laid down in front of the stage on which Trumpa was going to speak. And there was a little table on the stage. And Wavy looked sort of kind of a bit like a small mountain with his whole body suit and his belly. And of course, the Buddhists, who in those days seemed very serious to me, they really wanted to remove him. But Trumpa came in, he was wearing a full suit. And the irony was not lost. Here's the Tibetan wearing the three-piece business suit. And here's Wavy dressed as a clown sitting in front of him. And Trungpa began his Dharma talk by reaching for a Marlboro and having a drink of Drambui. And he was talking about spiritual materialism and these three different paths to Buddhism. And as he was talking about the direct, the fast path to enlightenment, Wavy leaned over and took a sip of his Drambui. This was not done. And all the Dharmadhatu followers jumped up as if to grab Wavy. And um, I started launching my From Your Doctor for Being Good Balloons. And now you get the picture, tippy nonsense, and doing, and then people were bouncing the balloons around. This is not what you should do in a Dharma talk, I've now come to understand. And then Trungpa started off by saying, no, no, just leave him alone. He's okay there. I'll work around him. And Trungpa started saying, you know, everybody here I know is loving and compassionate. And those were the days of the, the Bangladesh, concert for Bangladesh. Cyclone had just hit Bangladesh. A million people had been killed. Trungpa said, you know, you, you want to help. 
But you can't help anybody in any long, meaningful way until you first have achieved enlightenment. If you don't meditate and you don't look deep inside yourself, you won't know your own Buddha nature and you won't be able to help anyone. And after you've done that, then the help that you give will arise from a purer place. And Wavy said, as he reached over and took a hit on Princess Marlboro, he said, you know, Doc, I agree with you. We have to meditate and achieve enlightenment before we can do anything good. But really, while we're doing that, let's help the folks in Bangladesh because they're starving. And Prinko took back the cigarette, moved his bamboo slightly further out of reach, and said, yes, you're right. We have to be able to help the people who are starving in Bangladesh. But first, you have to achieve enlightenment. And Wavy lifted his body up a little bit so that he could reach the drambuie and took it and took a big sip of the drambuie, draining the glass. And he said, you're right. I agree. We're going to work to achieve enlightenment before we do anything else, nothing else. But Doc, while we're doing it, let's help the people in Bangladesh because they're hungry. And Pimpa said, I really appreciate your zeal and your understanding of Bodhisattva has to accomplish letting everybody else in line for enlightenment go before him or her. But in this case, you have to first work on yourself before the gifts that you will give in Bangladesh will have real meaning. And Wavy said, you're right, Doc. I won't do anything at all. I'll just do work on enlightenment. And then with that glint in his eye that only Wavy had, he looked up at him and said, hey, but while we're at it, let's send some food because those folks are really hungry and they don't have anything to eat. That went on, it seemed like, for four or five centuries. We had these two alternate paths, all brought right in front of us as Kamapa and Wavy played badminton. We moved from there to start to drive across uh, Europe through Bulgaria. (laughs) In the next episode, Wavy and the Hog Farm take two buses from Europe to the Himalayas. One of my great thrills was driving through the Khyber Pass on the roof of the bus in an altered state. Listeners, if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with a friend and rate it on the internet. Give it five stars. Don't give it less than that. We don't want any of those. But all the five stars, all the tellings of the people around the world, spread the word, spread the news. We need you. We need word of mouth, grassroots. Make it happen. Share, weave, and it's going to be magical. I love you. Thank you so much. American Prankster is executive produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Eric Hober, Larry and Gertrude Brilliant, God and Company, Thessaly Lerner, Rainbow Valentine, and Wavy Gravy, and sponsored by Levy Informatics at levyinformatics.com. Episode 8, written, edited, produced, and scored by Thessaly Lerner, with original music by Will Collins, Hope for a Golden Summer, Noodle McDoodle, and the Ukulele, mixed and mastered by Brian Slesher, narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Associate producers are Sage Leem, Ryan Reeves, Trina Calderon, Zappo Dickinson, Jundid Sykes, Jahanara Romney, and Mark Margolis. Logo by Jordan Paceno. Special thanks to Episode 8 guests, Adrian Marin, Jahanara Romney, Rachel Donahue, Georgie Bond, and Larry Brilliant. Plus appreciation to all the Do-Re-Mi budget donors, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listener, and the incomparable Wavy Gravy. For more info, go to rainbowvalentine.com and wavygravy.net. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil and towards the fun. Mwahaha.